Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers. And we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen. And I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better. That way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip. So once you've completed the quick survey, you can enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash James, J-A-M-E-S. Thanks for your help. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. Here's the big thing, emotional intelligence. You know what's really funny? Like, I think I'm actually at the least emotionally intelligent point of my life in a weird way. I just feel like, uh, I don't know, I feel like I've read a lot about it. I go to therapy. I do, you know, for years and years, I write about my vulnerabilities and I think maybe just writing about that I realize I have more vulnerabilities than I've ever had before so no, you always ha- it's not like you're writing about them as making them up dude right you just no. don't recognize you yeah no that's just it but now maybe now I'm just recognizing them more than ever that's not a bad thing why is that a bad thing it's not necessarily a bad thing I guess it's just more things that make me anxious in life so <laughs> so I've, I've added to my neuroses when I wake up in the morning. We all wake up with like a certain set of neuroses and then we kind of knock them down as we get out of bed. But well, I don't. You know the saying, when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah, right. You come out the other end, dude. I mean, first of all, everything in life goes in cycles. And for me, it always feels like the hardest part is always right before the best part. It's almost always the way it works, man. Like... I can't tell you how hard it was for me to to navigate the emotional waters of recognizing that I had hired the wrong person to run my company, that it was my fault. It really was. And swallowing that and then swallowing that because of that, I needed to step, I needed to put the right, and I had the right person in my orbit and I had to get him in my company and I had to step aside for him because I wasn't good enough to do that job. And I'm sure something like this will happen again in my life. But that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing is that the same thing happened, right? The same thing that happened that screwed up my movie happened in my company. This time, I recognized it early enough to see what I was doing and make the right decision. So I've got Tucker Max once again on the podcast. You were on my very first podcast. I was your first guest. Yeah, you were the first guest. And now the latest podcast, yes. obviously. What, is, what episode is like 230, 240? Yeah, something like that. So that's, that's a lot. That's I good. know. I feel like I feel like I didn't know how many episodes I would do when I first started or what what this podcast thing was. But I feel like I just keep going, and it's, it's well, you doing love pretty it. Well. You can tell. Like yeah. I, I was listening to your 
your one with um, uh, Tony Robbins was good. The one I actually really liked was uh, <sighs> Anders Ericsson. Oh yeah, he's good. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is like he's actually his stuff is great. He's terrible at explaining it. So, like, what was so good about your podcast episode with him is like you actually explained his stuff better than he does. Yeah, I think his his publicists were like sitting outside. I think right. they were very relieved after the podcast yeah. uh, that it was his his word was able to get out there. Yeah, he's you can tell he's like one of those academics that like he doesn't like you can tell why no one knew who he was until Malcolm Gladwell wrote about him. Even though he's this brilliant dude who yeah. did all the research that Malcolm Gladwell is famous for and screwed up. This dude, like, it's so weird. It was like he would say something. And I'd be like, wait, what did he say? And then you would restate it in a way it's like, oh, of course, obvious. Yeah. But like you can tell, like you really like it, man. Well, well, it's funny because then I've had on a lot of guests who are also trying to achieve peak performance in their lives. Right. And I'm like, oh, did you call or talk to Anders? And they've all talked to Anders Erickson. Like he's the guru of all these people yeah. who are trying to achieve peak performance. He's the guy who did the research. Yeah. Like he figured, he's demonstrated a, a practice research, all of that sort of stuff. He's the one who gets it. But, you know, now this might sound crazy to many people who know you from your initial books, but you're someone who I view as always trying to achieve peak performance in oh, everything you do. Yeah. So, like, you know, I hope they serve beer in hell, assholes finish first, uh, sloppy seconds. Well, what was the third book? That was the sloppy seconds was the Hilarity fourth book. Hilarity ensues. Hilarity ensues. So these are all like great, well written books. People just think they're like funny stories, but you can see they're like well, like it's yeah. good. Great writing, yeah. and now of course you've you've morphed that. I mean, there was there's a big middle space there, but you've morphed that into creating a company about helping other people publish their own books, yep. which we'll get to. But in terms of learning skills and peak performance, how do you think you became like a great? Like again, people, it'll frustrate you. It's frustrated you, I know, in the past. People yeah. won't say that's great writing, yeah. but it is actually like good it used to honest writing. Me a lot. Yeah. But you can see there's like an honesty there. And, and you know, all the stories are self-deprecating. It's not like you bragging in these books. It's like yeah. you're saying you're an asshole. Right, right, of course. So, well, I mean, the the, the thing, the, the we're 10 years out now from the the the, the first hand or the publish of Beer and Hell. And like the thing that like is funny is everyone's all, you know, everyone does this. Anyone could write this, whatever. 10 years, no one, no man that I know of has written anything close or done anything close. Can you think of anyone? No. And There's was, a whole line of female comics who've done kind of similar things. Yeah, I mean, no um, what about, um, what's the guy's I, name? I mean, in writing, I'm talking about. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, th- I'm trying to think of maybe one guy, like, um, in fiction, Chad Hurtgen. Colgen. Uh, yeah, yeah. He sold like 50,000 books. No. Yeah, yeah. No, I, think he, I think they're, they're, he's a decent writer, though, but his no, their novels, are they didn't sell so well. Right, exactly. So no one's done anything close. And it's, so think about how crazy that is. I basically wrote about what everyone does. Drink, hook up, fall down, act stupid, right? And no one has been able to replicate or duplicate or imitate it at all. You know, it, you know? It, it, so there's, there's two things I want to unpack there. One is it reminds me of Hunter S. Thompson because he's got a very distinctive, honest style as well and a lot of imitators. And the imitators don't, understand what he does so they're imitating the wrong thing what Same they're thing doing is they're yeah. getting drunk and then writing about it or they're taking drugs and then writing about it in this crazy way but they don't understand he's actually a writer first and then kind of like this this crazy maniac second yeah, 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 yeah. And so 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 what do you think what, what's 
and and I view your style actually as similar to Hunter S. Thompson. So I don't know if he was an influence on you or, no, or what. I actually hadn't read really any of his stuff when I started writing. I sort of got so it, it's interesting because I feel there's a there's a, a certain um, again a certain honesty and authenticity in the writing, which maybe is true for all good writing. But what what do you think is the What's the skill? What's the how do you so, how do you get to be a good writer? Yeah, so it's actually it's funny. The first question you asked was like, how do I get peak performance? How do I improve? I think the answer to that question and this question is the same. So always in my life, one of the things that I've always been willing to do is honestly look at myself and honestly evaluate kind of who I am and what I am. And of course, there are many times when I've failed at that, when I tried to be honest and like I just couldn't see something I didn't want to see or whatever. But but it's almost like a recursive loop in my head. I'm almost, it's almost, um, it's like I can't not do it. I've got to evaluate myself starkly honestly and see, am I what I think I am? Am I who I want to be? Am I good at this or not? And if I'm not, if it's something I care about and I'm not good at it, then I'm always willing to put in the work. Like, what am I not doing? What do I need to do differently? So how do you know? It's very hard to self-evaluate because we have this tendency to smoke crack yeah, about our ourselves. Our own crack, yeah. Right. So, so like, I know, I know thousands of people who write and yeah. they, they write me and say, oh, I just wrote something. I think you'd like it. Here's the link. Yeah. And I look at it and it's just... Garbage. Yeah. yeah, it's either garbage or it's the same thing everyone else is writing. There's no unique yeah. uh, voice, yeah. and so so people don't really know how to evaluate whether they're good or bad. Well, uh, it's a great it's a great point. So pe- those people are not writing to write. They're not trying to improve their writing. What they're trying to do is get attention, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a totally different thing. And I, I never was focused early in my writing at getting attention. I started. In fact, I never even self-identified as a writer. This is a key thing: is how do you? What is your identity? Right. I always kept my identity very small with writing. And so when I started writing, I was writing emails for my friends. And my only goal, my only measurement for whether the emails were good or not is did those nine guys think it was funny? And if they did, it was good. And if they didn't, it was bad. And that's it. There was no arguing, right? And it was easy for me to do that because I didn't define myself as a writer. So if they said it was bad, it didn't wound me. It was right. just this thing I did. So right? it, it was have, external. It me. wouldn't have stopped you. Like you didn't have your identity wrapped up. Exactly. In it. Whereas the people who are sending you stuff, they don't care about writing. They care about the image in their head of writer. They want to be a writer. Mm. They want to be Hemingway. They want to be you, know, you. You're successful enough now. I see a lot of people. This is exactly what you said, who are writing in what I call all tutor, like all tutor style, which is like I'm gonna dump my soul on the page, right. in the most raw, crazy way possible. And, and they also fail at it. Like they, they do terrible. Right. It's awful. It's they, unreadable. They're somehow yeah. They 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 miss the mark. Because <laughs> I'll tell you why. Because when you do it. It comes from a place where you started writing essentially as therapy for yourself, right? Like right. you were either going to write or you were going to die. That was your thing. And you say you have kept that kind of manic edge in 90 plus percent of your writing. Like I, I, I think about how, who intentionally reads someone else's Facebook stuff? Like no one. I would never. Right. You're one of the only people who when you put something on Facebook, I actually read it uh, because almost all of it still has that manic energy. Those people are not writing for that reason. They're writing because they want to. They want their narcissistic supply. They want someone to tell them that they are important or valid because of their writing, and so they're just trying to find a way to get a, uh, an output. They're not worried about the input. You're worried about input. I'm worried about input. That's why we succeed. Everyone I've ever. You want to look at if you want to boil it down to one thing, a binary thing. People who succeed worry about input. 
people who who don't succeed are worried about output. Okay, so let me let me understand a little bit more about about what what do you mean by input? I mean like the the work you're doing, mm-hmm. right? So uh, if you want to produce great writing, the only way the only way to do that is to worry about the act of writing. What am I trying to say? How am I saying it? Who is my audience? Those sorts of things, right? If you're worried about but most people with writing think about oh like they like they look at my stuff for example uh, and they'll say oh well he I get drunk I fall down I yell curses I'm gonna write really arrogant things about that and then I'll be just like I'll get the same attention Tucker Max gets right but none of that ever worked no one has ever replicated anything I did because of exactly what you said they looked at the surface things and they just replicated those things they didn't actually understand the underlying. Um, the under the underlying input. The input was I was opening my soul in a very entertaining, funny way for people. You open your soul in a way that is very engaging and motivating and inspiring and 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 almost uh, awe inspiring in your vulnerability. Right? They're totally different, but they both people stop because we help them understand things about themselves and feel things they want to feel and either escape or or be inspired. Right? Those other people aren't doing that. They're trying, they just want the result of that, right? They want the output of that vulnerability and that work. They don't want to actually put in the input. It's like, I think Mark Cuban's famous saying, everyone wants to be a star. No one wants to put in the work necessary to be a star. You do, and I do, and ever, all the successful people do. And, and it's hard work. Like, again, you think, so, so, I mean, you've sold millions of copies of your books, and I think what people are missing when they say, oh, I've gotten drunk, I've, you know, hooked up i've said curses i could write about this what they're missing is like what you say this this the vulnerability because that's not what your stories are about they're about this vulnerability and this and you you tell some like scary stuff about yourself that people are afraid to admit they just want to admit kind of the that's everyone's uh, second question to me do your parents know right (laughs) well well like they 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 people i feel like People who mimic you want to brag, whereas you're actually putting yourself down. <laughs> and, and well, I'm doing a, both. So, yeah. so, well, there's there's authenticity, and then there's storytelling. So you have the authenticity, which is very hard to do, and then there's also uh, a story. Like you know, there, there's the arc of a story in there, which I don't know if you instinctively knew or or had no, to I learn that, that. Or yeah, storytelling is actually fairly easy craft to learn. Mm-hmm. That's something you can learn. With, it's funny I brought up Anders. That's something you can really absolutely learn with just a little bit of deliberate practice. It does not. Ta- I don't think it takes that much to understand sort of beats of a story. And you don't have to be great. Like being Steven Spielberg is a whole different thing. Right. But but understanding basic story beats. Basic rising and falling action, things like that, is not so hard. Um, uh, the, the just like basic writing is not that hard. There's a million people out there, uh, probably maybe not a million. There's a lot of people who are better um, writers than I am in the sense of like if you took some sort of objective writing test about sentence structure and grammar, or whatever, they do way better than both of us, right? Mm-hmm. But no one reads their stuff. Why? Because uh, exactly, even if they're great, good storytellers. If they understand story intellectually, because they aren't willing to be, they aren't willing to be vulnerable uh, in a way in the way that you have to. They they either don't have anything to say, or they aren't willing to say it. One or the other. I, I think a lot of times people are afraid because they're afraid they'll they'll miss job opportunities. They're afraid their friends will be upset, or their family will be upset, or they'll scare people away. Because we all have these things that are embarrassing and we don't want to admit and that's 
part of, I think, the appeal of particularly kind of the narrative nonfiction writing that you did in your books is you're telling your story. You're not like making something up. Mm -hmm. So, so it's a little embarrassing. Some of the things you're saying, it's why you engendered some hate, uh, from your books, which I'm sure was pretty frustrating. It's, it's frustrating for me when I get, you know, some of the hate mails that I get, but, uh, but what would you say? How, how does somebody, uh, basically take the knife and cut, cut themselves open and bleed? Um, you did it because, in part, because you were generating laughter out of it. So laughter yeah. was kind of your fuel. Yeah, right. Laughter was my fuel. It's a, it's actually a really good question. How do you be vulnerable, right? Um, that's uh, the, that's a tough thing. Uh, I, I've spent. It's funny. I probably spent the last. I spent uh, whatever. I started writing about twenty seven, and then uh, my career probably peaked around thirty three, thirty four, thirty five in terms of frat tire, like my fr- yeah. the stuff I was writing for myself, not what I do now. Um, that that peaked close to eight years later, and then um, since then, I have spent a lot of time figuring out. I was very good at being vulnerable as a writer, very good. I was not so good at being vulnerable in my life with people um, that I cared about, people close to me, and I've spent a lot of time um, uh, working on that, like a lot of time in therapy, a lot of time, whatever. And it's led to we were talking about it on the way in, right? Like I'm like I have this boring life now. I'm like a father. You know, two kids, young kids, a wife, and it's incredibly rewarding. I love it. I really do. It's boring in the best way, but like the only way I got there was by learning how to take the vulnerability I had in my writing and extend it to my life. I, I don't what do you know. Mean the, by extend it to your life, does that mean like admitting to the people close to you when when you're scared or? It's not. It's not that. It it's down? not that simple, man. It, it's just like um, I. I was. <laughs> To be really, truly honest, I was very, I was tactically vulnerable in my writing. I was vulnerable in the way that I knew I had to be for the writing to work and for it to be good, right? And it, everything I, my vulnerability and authenticity in that writing is real, uh, but it is not, it's like, it's sort of like you're bouncing up on the surface and then there's this lightning strike that's really deep, but then I come right back up to the surface, you know? And so I think a lot of what people liked about my writing is that it was really funny and punchy, and I talked about things no one else had ever talked about, and then interspersed with that are these lightning strikes of insight that are really deep and vulnerable. Right, which I think people didn't notice that they were appreciating. A lot you of people. Did. Some people did. People like you did. Well, not everyone. Well, like I remember the the scene, and we even talked about it once before. The scene in the casino where you describe like two types of people, yeah. and mm-hmm. and you know, it's just lots of really interesting observations about people in general, and observations about yourself. And but but I think people were kind of looking for. It's like a kid looking for you know the nude pictures in a magazine. Right. You know, like people were just kind of going to, oh, what is Tucker? What's crazy Some fans he definitely do next? were, yeah. And, and uh, they weren't kind of seeing the actual sort of writing that was happening in between. Some people. I mean, I, I think most of my fan fans, the ones who read it all, really were. Mm-hmm. I think most of them are more like you, like people who got it. There were definitely probably a third to a quarter who were definitely like, oh, four jokes, sex jokes, this is mm-hmm. great. Um, and then most of the critics are people who didn't read it. It was just their... They, Almost all, the vast majority, like literally more than 95% are critiques of what they imagine me to be, of mm. secondhand sort of 
It's a critique of a secondhand characterization, not a critique of me. That actually was the thing that took me a long time to understand. It's like you live in this where you, you, you're seeing this now, really played out in media now. I was one of the first ones that really broke the Overton window in media. What does it like, mean, Overton window? Overton window is like the things you're allowed to talk about, mm-hmm. right? Like, like Trump destroyed the Overton window in politics. How, how, where did Overton come from? He was like the social psychologist who kind of named the phenomena that there are things you are allowed to talk about and things you are not allowed to talk about, right? And so I was one of the first people who broke the Overton window using the internet and then got actually famous where media had to pay attention to me. And so like uh, you growing up, you know, like, oh yeah, media this, media that. Like all the stuff you hear that people say a lot now, I think I, I kind of understood, but you don't understand it until it happens to you. Oh my God, none of these people talking about me I read any of my stuff, actually care about what I'm saying. They don't engage any of it. They are just using me as a prop so they can virtue signal to a different group of people. They're making me into something else that I'm not, some monster, so they can set themselves up as opposing the monster to uh, to some other group of people they want to look good to. That's all. And it took, man, it took me maybe a decade to really understand what was going on. I'm I, like... It sounds funny, like naive to say, but I was like, I don't understand. Like, why? Why would other writers not root for another writer? Like, how could you be? It doesn't make sense. And then I was like, it took me so long to understand that that that's what was going on. It's not just envy. It's it's for some people it was a lot of them it was. But the other thing was, it's not envy. It's it's what you are and who you are is just a thing for them to riff on uh to 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 virtue signal that's it like that that's most of the critique of me the vast majority of it is is just that in fact like, i cannot i cannot really think of anyone who really took my writing seriously on an intellectual measure who was not a fan of some sort or liked it for in some way you know but then um so you've 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 since gone on with those you had those four books then you wrote um you know how to increase your testosterone again being open about a situation well, it just where- came out everyone asked me about that one of my books like uh, if you guys can google this uh, there's a video called T- google tucker max sex ray like s-e-x-r-a-y and uh, uh like i hooked up with this nurse who ran a uh i don't know some sort of medical clinic and they had a, a fluoroscope which is like a video x-ray machine and she's like, oh, like, well, just Google it. You'll see. We basically invented a new type of porn. And then I went on Dr. Drew and showed it to him. And he's like, little Dr. Drew is like, in 20 years, this is the most shocking thing I've ever seen. He's like, oh, you can't shock me. You can't blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, look at this. And he's like, what are you doing? And like, uh, it created some medical issues for me. Uh, obviously. Are you sure it comes from that? From that, uh, I mean, shooting radiation how- across your testicles <laughs> is probably not a good way to increase your testosterone. If anything, it's going to do the opposite. What about when you're in an airport, airport screening? Like, is well, dude, then gonna- we'd all have the problem. Maybe we all do. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Maybe we're all lower than we could have been. <laughs> um, so, so then that that I wrote about that, and then I, I basically. Um, like some buddies, like this is, you know, like Tim Ferriss, some other people helped me get my testosterone back mm-hmm. and uh, to where it normally was or close enough. And then I got so much email from people like, what did you do? Mm-hmm. And so I just wrote this book and it's like, here, like, I think I give it away now to people, but I don't know. It's, not, it's on Amazon. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, uh, and then you wrote Mate with uh, Jeff Miller about right. uh-huh. uh, kind of, kind of an um, evan- ev- Evolutionary biology point of view on the pickup game, yeah, right. Somewhat, mm-hmm. and then you wrote the book in the box method, which right. we're going to talk about in a second. Your company, uh-huh. book in the box. But what I'm also curious about is, you say you're the peak of your of that frat tire writing career was around 33. 
were you sort of feeling, you know, oh, I've been writing this for six, seven, eight years, this style. Ultimately, there's only so much blood you have in the body that you yeah. can bleed. Yeah. Like, were you feeling like, oh, what am I going to do to keep up this adulation of my artistic efforts? Like, were you were you having a, a internal battle on how you were going to reinvent yourself? Yeah, um, I don't know. I don't know if that was what was going on. To be really honest, I think it was... I think the problem is uh, I got caught in the cycle that um, I was talking about why do people... Why do some people create uh, great stuff and other people don't? I got caught. I started off doing the right thing, and then success taught me all the wrong lessons, and I fucked up a lot. And so, in a way, I didn't even have to worry about reinventing myself because I kind of ended my own career early, and I kind of knew it. So, I, like at the end of Hilarity and Sues, which was like my fourth book in the series, I retired. Uh, you know, so I went out, quote, on top, whatever. But like, you know, because I went out with another number one bestseller. But I, part of it was I had no more stories to tell. The other part was I had fucked up that career. Like, um, I don't know what I made. Let's just call it $10 million off of that, including book sales and speaking and movie stuff and everything, right? I should have made $50 million or more, $100 million, $200 million. I should have made so much more. And not that money is everything, just money is a proxy for how, sort of How impact. is that? How could you have made Well, more? because he, here's a great... Um, so I did beer... I, I, I fell into all the traps that, that sort of arrogant people fall into when they have a little bit of success. First of all, I thought all my success was because of me. Like I was a genius. I was untouchable. Everything I thought and did was gold, right? Which is nonsense, but... Most arrogant, first-time, successful people fall into this. I um, And so what it did, and then I made the classic mistake. It's like I wrote Beer in Hell, and it did well, and then it kind of fell off, and then it came back like because it was such a ground, it was such a, 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 a popular book. It kind of, by word of mouth, it spread and spread and spread. And instead of just doubling down on what was working, writing, 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 I was like, okay, and then Beer in Hell came back on the bestseller list and stayed on for five years. I was like, all right, well, what can I, like, I got famous for writing, but I really want to make movies. It's like, oh, God, I don't know how many times I've seen this, right? And I did it myself. Uh, like, you get, people get famous for one thing. And how many athletes try and be rappers? You know, how many actors try and be athletes or whatever, right? And and uh, so I, I kind of you know, took a long time in Hollywood. I didn't need to. I, I wasted a lot of time and effort on a lot of things that I probably shouldn't have. What, why didn't you then? I mean, I'm just curious, like, given that... Um negative experiences are often material. Why didn't you write like how Bukowski did, your own Hollywood-type novel? Uh, you know, to be honest, I didn't think anyone cared that much. I didn't think I... I don't... I, and maybe more importantly, I didn't care enough to write it. Like, it wasn't interesting to me. Um, but it was I, so frustrating. It was so painful. Dude, it I, was interesting at some extent to you. Maybe. Um, I think the real story is, is there... So Hollywood is a terrible fucked up place. A lot of people have written a lot of stuff about this and done a lot of movies about this. That's not news. Yeah. The real story is, is um, I mean, I'll give you a great example. Uh, so <clears throat> the movie that, that was made in my first book, Niels Parker and I wrote, uh, who you know well, we wrote the screenplay. We got offered $2.5 million for the screenplay from Fox Searchlight and we turned them down to independently produce it. Uh, because I was convinced I was going to break the Hollywood system. Like, no one... The Hollywood economic system is basically formed as a response to George Lucas. Like, when he did Star Wars, he kept all the underlying IP, intellectual property rights. Mm. Uh, and because of that, like, uh, you know, and Hollywood, you know, Star Wars became Star Wars, George Lucas became a multi-billionaire, and Hollywood's like, holy shit, 
we like they that's what taught hollywood that everything that they do is essentially underpinned by intellectual property that they're not a movie uh it's not a movie business it's an ip business and so after that the only person who's ever been able to control any retain any their control of ip is tyler perry actually who's done a little bit because he built his own studio in atlanta and he raised all of his own money right and so i thought i was enough of a genius to be able to break the hollywood system and what's crazy is i almost did I got a deal from the guys who did Donnie Darko from independent producers. Uh, I got the George Lucas deal. No one can get the deal, and I got it. Mm. And so, of course, it just made me think I was that much more of a genius, right? And, and I was just, it was very much head up my own ass type thing. Uh, and, and what I opted for was to be right instead of doing the movie right. So it's like every decision I made about the movie, I didn't understand movies are collaborative arts. And so I made every decision about me and my ego not about what was going to make the best movie. And so what I ended up with was a shitty movie. So what was like an example bad decision? The director. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why why was that choice about your ego? uh, I picked the director who'd buttered up the most and who made me feel like I was so much of a genius instead of the guy who would have done the, the, in fact, the woman actually who probably would have done the best job on the movie. Uh, That's just one. um, The the producers, I picked the wrong, and they're great guys. I just picked the wrong people. Like almost every decision I made was about the glorification of my ego and not about making the best movie, which is the opposite of what I did in the writing. It's so funny because if you look at, you know, you you bring up George Lucas and Star Star Wars. If you look at who made a lot of the critical business decisions there, it was his wife, Marsha Lucas, actually kind of picked a lot of the you know uh people around him yeah people around him probably uh, explain they got divorced it explains why the first three were way better than the second three yeah it, well then they did get divorced and she wasn't as involved and he yeah. became more involved and, and he has more of a he's not so much plot driven as toy driven and so that was it and technology driven yeah so yeah those movies are all garbage um, like the later ones, I mean. Yeah, so I ended up, man, like, um, and basically the movie came out. It didn't do well. I was convinced this was going to be a huge hit. And we had we had the script for a huge hit. We did. It was an amazing script. Uh, all the biggest directors, actors in Hollywood, Justin Timberlake wanted to play me. We had, Like, I really haven't written or talked about this stuff. Why just you down Justin Timberlake? Do you want me to give you the real reason, man? Yeah. It's embarrassing. We I'll won't tell, tell anyone. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I'll tell you why. Uh, I wanted an unknown to play me because... If a known actor played me, then he would get more of the credit for making... I, I was convinced that the Tucker Max character was going to be a huge thing, and I wanted it to be about me, not about the actor. So you said no to Justin Timberlake. And bigger actors than him, even. And did 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 you meet with Justin Timberlake about it, or...? Yeah, yeah like his people, not him. Yeah. Uh, but like, uh, I forget his manager's name, this woman at the time. Uh, she was like, he loves the script, like, uh, you know, like... He wouldn't read for it or whatever. He's like one of those. Uh-huh. But she's like, if you're in, he's in, and blah blah blah. And like, uh, and we had like major A-list directors. Dude, Fox Searchlight, which at the time was the studio in Hollywood, yeah. um, were like, you know, they offered two, went back two and a half. They said yes, turned them down. No one turned down Fox Searchlight. Like the stuff that I, uh, it, it was just, I, 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 it's one of those things. You know that scene in the movie. Um, I love this movie, uh, No Country for Old Men. When uh, I've read uh, the book, haven't seen the movie. Okay, same book in the movie, the same scene. At the very end, the guy Woody Harrelson is like the special forces guy, and then uh, the guy, the guy who's like the killer, right? Yeah. They meet, and the guy's the killer going to kill him, and he says, you know, um, so you know, like basically, he says, "What do you think of of the rule now that it got you here?" He's like, "What are you talking about?" He's like, "You know what I'm talking about." Like, and the point he's making is that all the decisions, the way you make decisions led you to this point where I'm going to kill you now. 
you know? And so he's asking him sort of like, what do you think about that? And that's what happened to me is that like I made decisions a certain way and it led to a lot of success as a writer. And then I made, I kind of changed my decision-making process and I led to, it basically created the movie, the, the movie failing. Like it should have been a massive success. I made it fail. And, and once it failed, this ties back all the way into the first thing you asked, how do I keep getting better? At that point, I had a decision to make. Am I going to blame everyone else? Like the, I could have blamed the director. He did a terrible job objectively, mm-hmm. but I fucking picked the dude. I could blame any number of other people, but at the end of the day, it was my set of decisions that created all of that situation, right? Am I going to blame them or am I going to blame myself? Or I'm going to take my own responsibility for the things that happened. And I did. And that kind of, like, I took that responsibility and it was hard. It was, a, it, man, that was the hardest hurt I've ever had to swallow is that, like, I could have been way bigger at that phase of my life than I was. And I wasn't. Again, though, how, how could you have been bigger by writing more books in the? Yeah, well, genre I like I, I, I basically I should have written when when the movie came out, Beer and Hell rocketed to the top of the charts, and I only had one book out that time. Mm-hmm. I could have had two or three, mm-hmm. and I didn't because I didn't. I had Beer and Hell came out in 06, The movie came out in 09. I could writ, have written at least one, if not two, more books in right. the ensuing two years, right? And good ones. Uh, so that's that's uh, one I could have, you know. And the, here's the thing. Um, the, the marketing strategy surrounding the movie was about creating controversy. I mean, Ryan Holiday has made his whole career, uh, not his whole career, but for a long period, like his big claim to fame was that he helped me do that. And he did. Like we came up with that strategy and, and it was like, uh, the strategy is let's create a bunch of, let's basically huge rage profiteering. Like what Donald Trump is doing now very effectively. The difference is um, I was trying to be famous with mainstream media. Mm. None of my fans cared about that. Mm. I had this massive bulk of fans that I could have written for and created stuff for, and they, it could have grown and grown. I didn't peak really as a writer until 2012. Mm. Like my sales peaked in 11 or 12. Um, and so I had this huge runway to go. The problem is I created this little, this tempest. Most people know me because my movie came out in 09. And the way we got attention is we tried to shortcut the process. Uh, uh, like, we basically created all this bullshit controversy. Like, if you Google, there's a whole PR article, like a famous PR article written about this. I created the, the negative association with myself. Like, Ryan and I did it. Mainly me. Uh, no, nah, that's not true. Ryan, Ryan gets a lot of credit for this. He did a lot of the work. So, uh, we created this negative association between me and misogyny. Mm. And the way we did it is, he writes about this and Trust Me, I'm on. We basically figure, who are the most ridiculous off-the-wall women's social justice groups we could find. And then we made up stuff about myself, right? Took We took stuff I said out of context, pumped it out to them. Then they got pissed off. We alerted the media to them getting pissed off. We essentially created, you know, a tempest in a teapot. And then that blew up. And most of the people in America that have heard about me, heard about me based around that. And they all like, oh yeah, that's that misogynist guy. That's that guy who hates women. That's... It's, that's the irony is it's my own fault. Like it is my own fault. And I, Ryan uh, helped me orchestrate it. It's not his fault. I'm the one who like, uh, um, uh, we, I don't even know. He might even come up with that. It doesn't matter if he came up with the ideas. The point is I, I greenlit it. And I said, yes, this is great. Yes, let's do it. Let's go. Right? So it was my, my ego uh, basically overtook my sense. I was like, oh yeah. Like it doesn't matter how I get attention. I'm so amazing. People won't care, this or that. And so, so what I ended up doing is I ended up poisoning my well, 
right? Uh, and, and it's my own fault. There's no one else's fault but mine. Okay, but is this so? So so two things. A, this is related very much to recent decisions you made at your own company uh, about yes. your, about yourself about yes. book in a box. But we're going to talk about that in a second. But I'm I'm still sticking with the writing for a second because all of this is material that you could have written about in the same style. I, I wasn't. Uh, let me be. Honest, I wasn't emotionally. I can only write about things that I've processed. You're very different than me. You, that's one of the things that makes you so special as a writer is that you can write about things as you're processing them. Mm. I can't do that. Um, my, I'm too... You're more vulnerable than I am in that regard. Like, I, I'm just not... I just don't have... I'm too protective in that way. And so, as I was going through these issues, I had to go through them first. I may come back and talk about this at some other point later on, like in a, in a more written form. Um... I just, I don't know. It, it's still, it's not raw anymore. It's still really painful to me. And it's not like, I mean, look, I, I got very famous. I got all the things that come from that. It's just a matter of degree. But it really does suck to to know that I was the governor of my own success. Like I was the limiter. I was the limiting. I was the ceiling of my own success. And it was my decisions revolving around my ego and my arrogance and, and my... Um, my, my emotional immaturity, man. It didn't have to be that way. Like, it just didn't. It didn't. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away, and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, that initial 
when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. Not that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that? There's a whole section just with my name on it, hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's hims.com slash James for your personalized treatment options, hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So, so, so we've done a, a podcast before about your company, Book in a Box, but I just want to describe it real quickly. It's basically a lot of busy people out there want to write books. Mm-hmm. They don't have the time to write or the ability to write. They go to you, your company interviews them, and six months later, they have a book. This is kind right. of a book in a box in a nutshell. Right. We, well, it's a little, we have a, an algorithmic process. So it's not like it's their ideas in their words and their voice. Like you've had a bunch of our, our authors on. John Rulin, I know, yeah, did a book yeah. with us. You've had a bunch more. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you've kind of morphed your kind of passion for writing into helping others create yeah. books, mm-hmm. and and they're and they're good books. They're not like no, they're not garbage of, books. No. Yeah, and and they feel like okay. So, uh, uh, this is this is I'm gonna go. I'm gonna to get to the story in kind of a backwards way, but I read J.T. McCormick's book. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, I got there. Um, uh, I forget the subtitle about he survived abuse, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. all these things, and and now he's all actually the CEO of Book in the Box, which we'll talk about in a second. But I read that book, and it's written from his point of view. Yeah. Obviously, you guys wrote it, but it's his story. Yeah. It feels like he wrote it, and it's a well-written book. <laughs> I mean, he did. That's the thing. It's like we basically figured out a way. I like to say we disrupted ghostwriting, right? So ghostwriting is like you pay someone a bunch of money, and then they talk to you for a while, and they go write their version of a book. Mm-hmm. And that's all. It's never made sense to me because, like, then at that point, you're not really the author. And so what we developed was kind of by accident. We developed a process where we we essentially uh, interview you and create an outline. Right, and then we interview you off of the outline, and so it's it's uh, record that, transcribe it, and then edit that transcript into prose. So that way, it's not my, our idea of I what see, you're still saying. their words. It's all their ideas. It's their words, and we even do it in their voice. So if we do it right, and we we do it right almost all the time, not every single time, but almost all the time, someone should read the book and have no idea that anyone else was even involved. But you're def- you're definitely doing something where. There, there are writerly things happening in the book that they, they probably didn't say it in that order. Like you're, yeah, you're, yeah, you're, I mean, you're creating that's our job. climaxes our, and and no, cliffhangers. That's our job. And arcs. That, you know. that is our job because they have. Their job is to have the ideas in their head. Our job is to put those ideas in a book the way they should be in a book. So we see ourselves almost as like, like um, you know, when a NASCAR driver wins a race. No one really credits the pit crew, even though they're important. No one thinks about them. They think about the driver, right? That's the way we think about it. Is like we're kind of like the pit crew. Yeah, you need us, but we don't get to stand on the podium. We're not the famous ones. The author is. That's why we don't take any sort of authorial credit. Like we don't feel like we deserve to. Whereas a ghostwriter, a lot of times, can be like, "Yeah, like I wrote that book." That's like Trump's ghostwriter came out and was like, "He didn't write any of this. That's all me," right? Mm-hmm. Can't we couldn't do that because the way we work, it's not. I don't know anything about giftology. No one in my company does. That's all ruling stuff, you know. Like we captured his voice. It, they read the book. People read the book. They're like, oh yeah, this is exactly the way John talks. No, how he sure. Feels. And, and uh, I, I will say, having read giftology, and then of course uh, J T McCormick's book, are totally different styles. Of everything. course, they you, should you be. Those they, two men are totally different. Yeah. yeah. Well, so so which brings us now. Finally, to the, the the interesting story here, you say you don't process things in real time, but you've been writing the story bit by bit. You have this sequence six months of, behind, though. All right, six months behind, but like you have a sequence of of articles on your on your website, uh, asshole to CEO, right? And the final article is you basically fired yourself as, as CEO, yeah. and because you because you admit you were a bad CEO, and you hired. JT McCormick. Yeah. And so there's, there's one thing I want to ask, and then I want to kind of get into the, the full story of it. So you say how, so JT McCormick was, a, of course, a client first. Yeah. He, he, mm-hmm. he was doing a book through you. He was a CEO or president of another company. Yep. And he sat in uh, on a, uh, a management meeting or a management discussion at your company, and you were getting angry at the general manager. Yeah. And he diffused it in some incredible way, but you didn't say how he diffused it. I was just really curious how he did it. Uh, you know, And this uh, is what impressed you, yeah. uh, one of the main things well, that impressed you. Because he could deal with me. Mm-hmm. Like, when I get angry, um, 
I'm a hard person to deal with, man. I, I, I'm very intense and I'm very overpowering and most people just can't deal with it. And I don't mean it like in a bragging way. It's If anything, it's a weakness of mine uh, that I can just run people over. And I couldn't run him over. And he kind of flipped it and I was like, fuck, man, this dude. Like Basically what he did was he made me see what I was doing but not in a confrontational way. So, so specifically, what did he do? So very specifically, he... he uh, he kind of like, first off, he he totally misdirected the conversation, right? So he, he like literally got me thinking and talking about something totally unrelated. Well, well, okay. Well, to what were you upset thing. about? What were you upset about? So the, the it, I don't honestly remember what I was upset about. What I was actually, in the moment, I don't know what I was yelling at her about. What I was upset about was the fact that she was a total failure at her job and that I had picked her. Like I was the one who hired her for the company to save the company and she was literally the exact worst person we could have hired and it was all my fault and I had not yet swallowed that, you know? And so I was really angry. I was angry at her for being a failure but I'm angry at myself ultimately for picking the wrong person, you know? Um, that's what. That's why I was so angry. Like, we were talking about something minuscule. I, I can't remember what it was. Whatever, like the way she put a spreadsheet together. Who knows? Something so small, it did not make sense that I would be that angry. So right? JT is sitting there kind of looking at this from uh, the outside, and what does he say to you? So he, he first off, he, he misdirects me. Uh, so the anger immediately diffuses because he's not coming at me oppositionally. What did he say to misdirect you? I honestly don't remember. It was something, it was such a misdirection. I can't remember what it was now, but it was sort of like, like if if I was yelling uh, like uh, at her about a spreadsheet, he's like, Tucker, who's your favorite football team? I'm like, whatever. I don't know. The the Redskins. Or, uh, like, I don't even know why. He's like, okay, let me ask you a question about the Redskins, blah, blah. And so like just a real quick, like one or two things. But what it did is it, it it got me off of my sort of like spin cycle of anger, right? Then he brought it right back before I got like frustrated. Like, what the fuck are we talking about this for? Then he's like, all right, let me ask you another question. It was kind of related, but not really. So he's um, kind of, it's almost like he misdirected and then he's metaphorically bringing it brought, back. Brought it back. And, and it, it, what he basically did was, you know, why are you doing this company? And I'm like, I'm like you know why? I'm like, he's like, tell me. Tell me exactly. Why does this matter to you? He's like, you got money. You don't have to do this. Why are you doing it? So I, you know, I kind of gave him the spiel. He's like, all right, so let me ask you, um, when you yell, uh, what do you think that does? Does that help your goal or hurt it? And then I like I started to like try and argue the point that I was yelling about. And he said, no, 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 hold on. We'll get to that in a minute. We're going to get to the point. Do you think yelling helps your mission or hurts your mission? Like, uh, you know, it doesn't, it, 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 it probably doesn't help. He's like, let me, let me, let me paint a picture for you. And so, like, whatever, like, he kind of told this story about how, like, the company was painted a picture of the company a few years in advance and, like, doing really well. And then, like, something happening and me blowing up and, and then, like, basically creating, uh, like, uh, basically causing, like, really important people to leave and quit, right? It's like, would you want that? No, he's like, no. He's like, can a CEO have that? No, no, he can't. He basically made me. He asked a series of questions and made me understand that what I was doing was destroying what I was trying to accomplish. But he did it in a way that was not confrontational. He made me say it, see it to myself, right, in the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so so you were the CEO then. Then he calls you up and basically says he wants to leave being president of a huge software company, uh, I guess. $100 million software company, a huge one, yeah. Yeah, and... Why did he then want to, you know, he didn't even say, I want to be CEO of your company. No, he was he wanting to work under he you. He's going to come in as president. You know what's funny? Is Zach and I, 
at first didn't believe him. We were like, okay, this has to be a scam. Like at first, we'd been to his office at Headspring, like when he like signed the contract to be a client and stuff. So it's like, I knew like he wasn't, he worked there. We'd been there. And, but what's funny is we went on a Friday and Fridays is like the, the sort of work from home day mm-hmm. at, at, the, at his company. So there weren't a lot of people in the office. So Zach and I were like trying to think of ways that he was like a scammer. We're like, what if he's the janitor and he saved up all his money and he brought us in on the off day? Uh-huh. Like that's how crazy. The only scam we could come up with was he was like going to work really hard for 10 years and help us scale this company. Like We could not figure out how he was scamming us. That's how crazy this seemed to us. Okay. At the time, I think we had not even done $2 million in revenue as a okay. company. Um, and he's he's and he's running a $100 million revenue company. Right. Mm-hmm. $100 million valuation. I think they were doing close to 20, 25, 30, okay. whatever. They just got, they like maybe just had an offer to buy them at like okay. $100 million. So, so uh, uh, yeah, he's doing crazy. Like 10, 100 times that. And so, um, uh, like... We've eventually realized he's super sincere, and, and uh, like there are a couple reasons that actually made sense. Like he didn't really have any equity in that company. Like there were some other things going on, uh, and then and he didn't care about software, and he loved like kind of what we we're doing and all those other sorts of things. And so, um, yeah, so so we 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 brought him on, man, and that was almost a year ago to the day. Like I think his one year anniversary was like March first or something. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, now think about it. We just crossed um, 450 books. Wow. And okay, like I didn't know that. Eight or I think I forget if we crossed eight or nine million in revenue. Um, and like he, we were at maybe two when he came on board. So in a year, this dude is like, he's we're. And the crazy thing is, he spent most of the last year unfucking a bunch of our messes. Like he wasn't even in growth. He couldn't be in growth mode because we had such an amazing idea as a company, a lot of good people, but we had everything dicked up. We had so much dicked up. It kind up of it kind of lets you do what you're, in my opinion, what you're good at. Because I I've seen you present several times now about the company, and you're like really good about at it. You're like you you widened my own definition of what self publishing could be about. I even wrote about it this morning. Yeah, I, I, I saw I, that actually. Yeah, because yeah. you 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 said now someone could even write a book about their own family history. They don't have to write a bestseller. They could write right. something that just lasts. It's just an event. Yeah. And uh and you're you're a great spokesperson for the company and he gets to then build it. He gets to run it. Yeah. yeah. Like did this was this is right. Like I had another one of these moments, man. It's like, this is why I spent four years in psychoanalysis. Why I spent so much time working on myself physically, emotionally, mentally is for this moment. Is like a year and a half into the company, we had this amazing idea. We had all these clients. We were growing incredibly fast and everything was coming apart at the seams because frankly, Zach and I did not know how to scale a company. We just didn't know how. Like was uh, logistics falling apart or sales falling apart? No, it's like... Well, th- we didn't understand a few core things. Like, we didn't understand that at, at, at essence, we're not actually a book publishing company; we're a relationship company, because so many people have this deep emotional relationship to books and to their book, and it's very much tied into their identity. And the way we were looking at it was sort of professionals, like artisans, you know, like we, craftsmen. We knew we did a great job. Like, like, stop worrying about it. Just get on the phone. We tell you to get on the phone. Tell us, answer our questions, and we're going to get you an amazing book. And we did. The problem was we weren't dealing with people's emotional experience. Like, what's an example where you where you messed up in that way? Oh my god, so many. Uh, like, we have we have a whole batch of authors who got amazing books and who like they, they they're like, yeah, my book's good, but they're like, ah. Uh, I don't know, dealing with them was really hard. You know, we're like, eh, I don't know. Like, there, we just had a lot of um, sort of in that middle stage, like author like 25 to 50 in terms of like, you know, we're at 450 now. That In there, like the early ones, 
we were still small enough. We're kind of just doing things on a one-off right. basis. And so, and they had relationships with me or Zach. So it was kind of a different thing. Once we got to the point where we had people, oh, we hired all the wrong people. Oh, that's another huge, we, like the number one rule in startups is hire great people. We thought we were. Uh, JT came on board, fired nine of the first 11 people hmm. that, that we hired, not counting Zach and I. Like we only have two people that are still here. They, they got here when he got here. And they weren't bad people. They were just the wrong people the company and so we had the wrong people doing doing the wrong thing and, and it just wasn't we we just weren't doing we we weren't we weren't it's like the difference between children and adults man like a grown-up adult company because what we're doing is very complicated man this is a manufacturing process for books but that still has to hit a very high artistic quality level and has to manage someone's emotional process through one of the most sort of deeply touching things they're ever going to do, even if it's a book just about business, this is a representation of themselves. Well, it's their story. Like You look at JT's book, it's a, it's a very painful story. Well, JT's it's, is a memoir, but yes, exactly. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean, so so we, we, have, uh, we had a very complicated business and we were not doing a good job. Like, our financials weren't in order. Like we were making money, man. That's so crazy. We were making money, and the you know the it's not like a uh, you know like we had uh, what are receipts and shoeboxes or something. But like we didn't know exactly how much each book cost because the way we were you know paying freelancers and stuff, it was hard to reconcile accounts. Mm. So kind of grown up things like that, you can't scale a company like that. Right. Or like um, you know the way that we were onboarding and hi- hiring freelancers, the good ones were doing a great job, and the bad ones were creating horrible customer experiences for our authors. Like our authors like hated them or whatever, mm. and and we we didn't. There were just a lot of things we weren't doing right. Uh, the, now we do them all right, but we just weren't. We just didn't have it together, man. It just it was like, and so I I, I basically I had to like I had to ask myself the question. Do I want to have a great company or do I want to be in charge? You know, is it about me or is it about our mission? And um, it was really, that's why I was yelling at, at that GM because that was, I, it was right in that phase. Because that was the thing, Zach and I knew this. So we, we tried, we went looking for a professional manager first. And that's who we hired is this woman uh, from a huge software company, the most impeccable resume ever, seemed like a total baller. And she got in the company. And James, like I knew almost the first day. In fact, you know how I knew? Oh man, I wish I paid attention to my gut. You know how I knew? It was one question. We're a startup. We're a year and a half old. We've done two million in revenue. We've got like five, six full-time people, right? Mm-hmm. Her first question. Oh, so what kind of computer am I going to get? Are you guys mm-hmm. buying me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like that, 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 if at LinkedIn or something, that question makes perfect sense, right? At a startup, this is what she's thinking about and asking. And I had, I remember it. I had this feeling in me. It was like, get out. Like, 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 you know, in the movie, you're watching like a, a scary movie and you're like, get the hell out of the house. Like, that was what I, the feeling I had and I ignored it. Um, and then, what course, could you have done though? Like, now I should have just fired her immediately. Right, right there. On I the should spot. have immediately been like, this is wrong. This is not like uh, the right fit. Um, there were other things. It's not like that was by itself. There were multiple other things like that. That was just the thing that where I knew where I had that. Oh my and god! Did JT get rid of her? Uh, no, I I I cleaned up the mess I made. I fired. Her. Okay. Uh, she did. Uh, technically, she quit, but we kind of gave her. It was like one of those things. Was like, look, she she saw the writing on the wall. Here's the. She is really smart. She's amazing. I can see why she did super well at a huge company. She is the best I've ever seen at managing internal politics, and like 
not doing work, but managing work, mm. right? She doesn't actually know how to build anything. She didn't actually know how to do anything in a business except manage pol- politically manage relationships. So, so JT uh, comes in and he's the opposite of that. Kind of he's the shop. iconic doer. That dude knows everything. He knows how to like. I mean, you want to talk about financials? This dude, like our financials now are so amazing. Like, I mean, he can tell you anything you need to know about our company just on our P&L and financials, right? Uh, and then, like, he understands customer service. He grew up in sales, so the dude's a world-class salesman. He is, like, one of those guys. He's not a startup guy. He's a pure, solid business guy who's had all these different jobs in his life, sold all these different things, built these different companies, didn't start them, built them, mm-hmm. scaled them. And uh, like and, everything. And, and why again would did he want to go from his hundred million dollar company to he didn't your own little it, straight company. up he didn't own any of that company. Uh, okay, like uh, the 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 he joined that company when they were ten years old and they had been, done two million dollars a year in revenue for ten straight years or something like that. Like I'm making up numbers, but yeah. basically, and he basically joined he he had made a bunch of money in, in mortgages. He ran like Wachovia Mortgage Division in Texas, all this kind of stuff. And then mortgage crisis happened, and he had tons of money at that point. He just sat at home, like, you know, eating Jack in the Box, working out, reading. And uh, some recruiter found him, and he's like, they basically, long, long story short, he's like, he didn't know anything about software. He like thought, okay, this might be fun. Let me go join like a little tech, techie type software startup and see, see what I can do, right? And so what he ends up doing is. He's the only sales guy. He ends up bringing in so much sales, they have to tell him to stop selling because they don't have the people to do it. So like, they go from two to like five to ten to twenty. Like, I mean, he's doubling them every year almost. And basically, like, for, then he's heading the sales team, and then he's like the VP, and then the guy running it is like, "Can you just run the whole company for me?" And so for it took about five years. He went from the one sales guy to in I think in two years he was the president. And the next three years they went from twenty people to like a hundred people and five offices around the country. And he figured out like he learned all these things about really scaling a tech company and all these sort of things. Um and so at that point, that's when he met us. And uh he didn't own any piece of that business. And and it's like it's a thought listen, it's it's so it's it was the, the commodity part of software business, mm-hmm. right? Like enterprise sales type things and all that kind of stuff. And so um I met him and it was like, you know how I am, man. If I want to sell somebody, I can. I didn't even try and sell him. It was just more like he was so interested in what we were doing and he thought it was so amazing and he saw us screwing up. Like, And the, the ways we were screwing up, he's like, I know I can fix those. He's like, I know why you two are screwing up. I know I can fix those and I know this can be a billion dollar company. You two aren't going to do it. And no offense, you're not going to get this done, at least not in time. you know. And so... Um, at first, of course, I was like, you know, Bafangul, <laughs> fuck you, right? But he was right. Like, he was right. And um, and so, I, like, it was one of those, it was it was weird, a really hard decision, but it was like, I knew it was the right decision because as soon as I made it, I felt like a thousand pounds lighter. I was like, I'm going to bring in this guy who has the exact skill set we need, and I'm going to put him in charge, and I am going to step out of being in charge, and I am now going to report to him. Now, I still own the majority of the company, and between Zach and I, we, we still control the entire company, but he's going to be the real CEO, and I'm really going to step down, and I am going to listen to him in the areas that I'm not good at, and I'm going to focus on the things I am really good at, and um, and he'll learn from me in those in those regards too, but it... It boiled down to I decided I was going to make it about the mission and not about me. And that's I made the right decision. Now, look, I mean, we're three times bigger in a year. 
we're going to do 10 or 20 million this year in revenue. And like, how's he like, w like, what's he doing different on the sales side to get, you know, all these authors and like going from 20 authors to 450, that's, that's a lot. Yeah. And that's, by the way, that's a, I can't even imagine that's a huge logistical problem. Which he solved. Yeah. Like he's amazing. Uh, it's, it's not, so I'm a pretty good sales guy. He's much better, like being a one-off thing and being able to build something scalable are two different things. So he understands how to hire salespeople, how to train salespeople, how to build a department. I know none of that. None, none, zero, I like nothing. And so like, I'm not even that good at sales, to be honest. I'm just good. I believe in what we're doing and I can talk about it eloquently, which is a little bit different than sales. Uh, so like he's, I mean, he, we just hired our first actually sales guy. Because we had, we've, uh, whatever, long story short, we hired our first real sales guy like three months ago. And the dude's already doing great, you know, because JT hired him, JT trained him. He was already really good at sales. JT picked him out, and the guy's like amazing. Dude, we have 20 full-time people now, and only two of them are holdovers from before him. And the other 18 are all like amazing. So 20 full-time, how many freelancers? About 150-ish. Wow. Yeah. So it's a big, it's... It's a big company. We're building now. a manufacturing process for books, dude. Do you think um, this kind of uh, ability to uh, uh, kind of focus on the on the end game as opposed to the ego? Do you right. think this is related to you also starting a family? Because I noticed for myself when I first started having kids, it kind of changed my attitude completely about yeah. making money. Like I realized. Oh my God! It's not just making money for me. Like I'm gonna have to make this. This kid has to live for 18 years. I've got to feed her. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know how much that had to do with it. To be honest, um, I don't I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, the my kids have changed me a lot in the in the medium term. They're both very sensitive, um, and I'm not. And so like I I've had to learn to be very aware of my behavior because like my son my son Bishop's two and a half. My daughter Vaughn is like three months, and um, and not sensitive in a bad way. I think it's probably a normal way. I'm just like not like that, and so like I know my son is going to pay attention. He's going to learn from me by watching what I do, not by listening to what I say. Mm. And so I both know how what I do in front of him, what I do as a man at all, and especially in front of him, is going to be how he learns to be a man. And so, like, how I talk to his mother is going to greatly impact him and how I talk to his sister and his grandmother and how I talk to him, you know? Like, there are times, like, you know, he'll do some, whatever, some kid thing. I'll be like, Bishop, what are you doing? And he'll, like, kind of freeze and get that, like, deer in the headlights look and I'll realize, I didn't even realize I was, like, had a sharp uh, intonation, right? And then I'll think, oh, God. And then I've got to, like, calm down and not even that I thought I was that, you know, whatever. And I got a backup. I'm like, come over here, buddy. Because I, I realized, like, you know, like, parents have a nuclear power over their kids. Like, especially same-sex parents, right? And and if his experience of me is, like, snapping at him all the time uh, and being angry all the time, or even a little bit, like, that's going to greatly impact him. Um, especially, Are you saying this from experience? Like, was, was your dad yeah, angry at you all the time? My dad wasn't around. Mm -hmm. Like, when I wasn't around, my grandmother was a yeller, definitely. She was an angry, angry, bitter yeller. Not just at me, at everybody. She was a drunk and, a, like, really, frankly, a mean person. Um, uh, and she was one of those women who grew up, like, when sexism was, like, awful. You know, like, like, like crazy, like, I can't believe someone would do that type. Uh, and, and, and I think she was very independent. And it, she just had a hard time dealing with a lot of that stuff. 
And instead of like dealing with it, she took it out on the people around her. And and then my mom was just a mess. And so like I, I didn't grow up in a good situation. And my dad was gone. And when so like I, I didn't grow up in a very good situation at all. And um and Is that so, kind of hard uh under trying to understand then what a good situation even is? Yeah, 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 of course. That's my wife definitely had better parents than me, and she's way more sort of centered and calm, which is one of the reasons I was so attracted to her. She's like rock solid. That's very so clear. Stable. I've met her many times. Yeah. She's she's rock she's, solid. She <laughs> is so rock solid. Um, but yeah, a big part of therapy was understanding not just what does normal look like, because there's no such thing as normal. Everyone gets obsessed with what's normal. No, no, no what's healthy look like, mm-hmm. you know? And and healthy is for me, um, all I care about is that Bishop uh, and my kids know that I love them, that bo- both me and my mom love them very much, and that um, we're gonna love them and support them no matter what they do. But the world is not gonna like treat them the way we are, <laughs> you know. Like they- they're always gonna be able to come to us and and get that sort of love and 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 unconditional love and affection. But I also need to help them understand that there are rules and boundaries and consequences in the world. Um, and, and both in our relationship, but then in the broader world, I've got to help him as much as possible prepare for his life, uh, while knowing he's got a, pl- a soft place to land with us, no matter what. So, 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 uh, going back to the business, you had this great idea. Nobody else was doing it at the time. I don't know if there's competitors now. I have no idea. Actually, are there competitors to both? Yeah, of them I mean, us? not really. They're not. They don't. It's sort of like. No, it's like other competitors of Ferrari, eh, kind of, but not really. No. So, so, so you have you have this great idea. It's you created a bunch of books initially. Uh, you were a great spokesperson for it. You bring on the CEO. Now, what do you do on a daily basis there? Man, I do a lot. <laughs> you know, honestly, I do a lot of things I should have been doing from the beginning. Um, it, it's funny. I, I feel like <laughs> it's hard to say. I guess. I feel like I was really kind of a garbage entrepreneur. Like I was really bad. <laughs> like it's funny to say having this really successful company that's growing crazy and getting all this press and doing amazing. I feel like I was a really bad entrepreneur. Um, I'll give you a great example. So right now my kind of area of responsibility, my title is director of product because what I do, I spend all of my time pretty much working on um, how, like we're we're rolling out all these new divisions uh, slowly. But like we're developing them, right? Like great, great example: a speech in a box, right? So you want to do a speech, uh, come to us, and it's basically the same book in a box process. It's just structured around speeches. So we'll interview you. We'll understand who's your audience. What are you trying to accomplish? All these sort of I things. I love this idea. It's it's good. And we have you like make this, a speech. Uh, exactly. We we help them. We kind of get everything out of their head. We craft a speech. We have them give it to us. We do a bunch of refinements. You know, like we'll we'll. Uh, I have this amazing database of like great anecdotes people can tell. Uh, you know, like uh, we have all these different structures, speeches, and so it's not uh, like please. I should, probably shouldn't have talked about this because God forbid people are going to want this as a service. Now it'll be out soon, um, but my job is like developing the new things we do, right? So I, I kind of develop the idea, I beta test it internally, then I beta test it with a few clients, and then we roll it out and we kind of go slow and things like that. So we already have. Um, what do we have out? We have publishing in a box, which is like book in a box, except you just bring us a manuscript and we do all the publishing. We have thought leader media, which is sort of like like thought leader in a box. Like, it, well, you know, we do articles, we do PR for them, that kind of stuff. And then we have podcasts in a box is about to launch. Huh. Um, we've got, um, so basically like what you're doing, we just do all the work for people, you know? Um, but so that's my job is to do those things. And, and the way JT makes me do them now is so methodical. And it's great because like now we're building a company to scale. 
Like before Zach and I were like, let's get it done. Let's do amazing things. Let's do this cool stuff. But like we we're always chasing the cool, shiny thing, solving the hard problem instead of saying like, okay, how are we going to, you know, do this project management? How are we going to, who's responsible for this little thing? Who's doing this little thing? Like he makes me be very deliberate in how I do things, which creates, ends up creating better processes and better products. And we're, we're building a great company. But like all those things we, I could have done from the beginning with Book in a Box. I was too arrogant in a way, I think. And and either I didn't know or I just thought, oh yeah, yeah, like anyone can do that. How hard can that be? So so to some extent you got uh mentoring from uh JT in terms of like what does a bigger business look like and what does and, a grown up business and, look like? And and given where you envision it your dream five years from now, backing backing up, what what does that say about your behavior now? Will your behavior now lead to that mm-hmm. vision you have five years from now? Yep. Um but I think I think also it, I really like the fact that this book on the box kind of comes out of your initial passion for writing. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so so let's say someone's listening to this and they're trying to figure out. Well, there's two things they could be listening and thinking about: is a everybody's got a book inside of them. What could they write about with you? They don't even need to write it. They could just call you guys yeah. and uh-huh. and talk. But what if what if they're thinking? Well, how do I find what my particular passion is that I could uh, you know make a business about? This 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 is sort of like fifteen years coming for you. Yeah. So uh, that is something I know well. Um, so I, I feel like anyone who is looking for their passion is uh, you're doing it wrong. So th- think about l- 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 th- it's. E- I think I always think it's easier to break things down to their core elements. Right? Why the hell does business exist at all? Any business? It's to meet the needs of someone. Right? Like uh, we someone has a book in them that they want to write that will help them in some way they think is more valuable than $25,000. So they come to us so we can kind of do that for them, right? Or, you know, if you're hungry, you want to eat, you go to a restaurant, you give them money, they give you food, you're both better off, right? You're me- they're meeting your needs. So people think business is about passion. It's not about passion. That's really stupid. I hate that. There's nothing wrong with passion. Passion is amazing. But you need to first start with... Um, what the hell do people want? Not what do they want to buy? What needs need to be met mm. first, right? Then th- that's where you've got to you got to understand that as a core thing, all right? Then the next sort of step is is understanding, okay, what skills do I have? What can I do uh, that other people find valuable, whether directly or indirectly, right? And then like, what are people going to pay for? Right? I think a lot of people don't know what their skills are or don't know what their unique skills are. Well, if you start with what do people want, right? What can I do? Then you can look at, all right, well, what other skills do I need to develop, right? If I want to start a business. So now you can start in areas you think are interesting, right? Uh, or passionate, like you're passionate about whatever, some area. That's fine. It, it's not like uh, you can't have care about passion. Start there. Like if you're passionate about dogs, okay? I think there's probably a million businesses. And do- actually, let me give you a better example. I thought about with Veronica yesterday. This is an amazing business, and if I like had nothing else to do, I'd build this. So we were in the supermarket the other day, and like there's the the organic sort of healthy, clean food movement is a massive secular wave that is coming and will overtake uh, the sort of uh, corporate industrialized food that we've been eating for fifty post World War II era. Every, all the big PPG, uh, um, PPC like uh, product uh, companies know this. That's why they're buying all these companies, all the, the little organic ones. The one area where there's almost no sort of like really good uh, products are ethnic foods. 
<laughs> like like organic, paleo, you know, clean, whatever, however you want to frame it. There's almost nothing in tr- in real ethnic stuff. Korean, Chinese, uh, uh, Mexican mm-hmm. specifically. There's a few co- little companies that are trying it. No one's really there, right? So if you've got a massive passion for food, look around. Like there's a massive hole in that market right now. I, I could easily go in and start the Mexican paleo organic food company right now today. I can think of two companies are trying to be competitors and we I could smoke them in the market, no problem. Well, let's Same play, thing let's for Korean and Chinese. Let's say, let's say I wanted to do this. I, I'm not a chef. I don't know how food ingredients mix with each other. There so you I'd go. have to find a no, chef. No, why? I wouldn't find a chef. Okay, so what Because a do? chef is going to bring a lot of baggage. I would say, if you want to, let's, let's say you want to go to Korean, right? Okay, great. First off, if you don't love Korean food, I would not recommend it. But if you love Korean food, that's your thing, then I would say go start f- cooking all the Korean food you can. Right, so let's say you eat healthy, paleo, organic, whatever you want, and you like, like, okay, there's no, there's right now, there's really nothing in Korean. I can think of no one, no one who has any national footprint at all. Um, there's one local in Austin. Their stuff's okay, uh, but like, so go start making Korean food. Learn how to make Korean food. Get decent at it. You don't have to be great. Get, get, get. You know, develop a fundamental expertise in gochujang and like all the different Korean ingredients, and start making it and, and see. Okay, what are the fundamental ingredients in Korean food? Kimchi, things like that. Uh, where do I buy them? And where do I get healthy versions? They don't exist. Okay, what goes in these? How can I make these? How can I make healthy kimchi? How can I make healthy gochujang? How can I make healthy whatever? Right? Make it for yourself. Now, try and sell it. Does anyone like it? Does anyone who wants Korea, uh, Korean food, constituent Korean uh, sort of ingredients, are they willing to pay? Because it's going to cost more money to do that sort of healthy stuff. Are they willing to buy it? Go find, where are those people? I mean, there's a million farmers markets, right? Go try and sell it. Go see if there is a market for this, right? Then, because you don't even know if you have a business. Like, I'm assuming this is going to be big. This is a really good point, actually. You People don't know they have a business. They have an idea. They don't know how they yeah, have a, a business. A bunch of people have an idea, and their ideas are always, almost always stupid because they're like, oh, here's an idea I have. And I'm like, and then I'll ask them basic questions like, uh, who wants that? Who's going to pay for that? And I don't know. I think it's just clever. That's not how you start a business. You start a business by meeting someone's needs. So my assumption here is that there are a lot of people who want to cook with Korean food who uh, uh, want healthy uh, versions of the, because the stuff you got to buy at Korean markets is like awful, the worst. Chinese is even worse, man. I know this because I was, long, long story short, I was trying to learn Sichuan cooking, me and my wife were, and like trying to find good Korean uh, Chinese ingredients is impossible. Like uh, we had to order Sichuan peppercorns from like China. It was the worst. But like, uh, 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 anyway, so like how big is that market? It might be tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. So uh, uh, you need to like try and sell it. See if anyone wants to buy it, right? And if they do, okay, maybe you have to help create that market. Maybe people think they can't cook Korean at home because it's too complicated. So maybe what you have to do is like be the person who teaches Americans how to cook Korean at home. It's actually not hard at all. And Korean food is amazing and super healthy and you can eat super paleo. So maybe you become the person who teaches the paleo community how to eat Korean and then you sell them all the products with it. Uh, you make all the the sort of the hard things. You don't sell them the lettuce and the meat. They can get that anywhere. But the sort of constituent ingredients that aren't found in normal supermarkets, right? That's how you develop a business is you look wh- where is there a need? What skills am I missing to get there? Develop those skills and then solve those problems along the way. I'll tell you right now, I you cannot name a business right now, a mature business that could not be disrupted 
easily by someone who really understood it, who came in with a fresh mind. I have a hard time thinking of one that couldn't be disrupted. Like the ones that could are like, oh, come on. I got on a list, man. Well, well, think about how, you know, I'm just thinking about how you started Book in the Box. It was uh, you were trying to talk uh, the CEO, a specialist in pop-up stores. Yeah. You were trying to talk her into writing a book. And she's like, listen, I'm too busy. You, you, you're trying to convince me. You figure it out how I could do it, yeah. and that's so she without ghostwriting. That's what she said. It's got to be her ideas. Yeah. And and what's interesting, this is I think a common evolution of businesses is what's happening with your business right now. Is it starts off as an agency. You're essentially providing yeah. the, the specialists are providing a service uh -huh. to the first clients. Yes. But then you productize the service, and that's mm -hmm. how you scale. And then you scale exactly right. That's actually a better way to frame it than I did. Well, and, and I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of software companies start that way. Oracle was a service and they provided the same service so many times and it was basically creating databases for companies they became a database company and that's how your value goes up is when you when you create a product that's scalable a service is not scalable so so that's a very uh uh so what you're describing there is you almost can provide uh, someone can test an idea by seeing if they can sell the service to a few people and then you start to scale it figure out how to scale it yeah or, or just sell it on a small scale mm -hmm. one or the other you know yeah absolutely of course so, so I want to. I'm interested also in just kind of what's going to happen to books. So, you know, books. There's so many books being published now, and in part because of all this, not only self-publishing, but then companies like yours yep. are going to make it very easy to publish books. We've just started, man. It's going to be know. way bigger. I know. So, is it going to? Um, is it going to drown out? I already feel like since 2010. Uh, I feel like between 2000 and 2010. There was this room for people to really break out, as like you did, yeah. and Tim Ferriss did, and Malcolm Gladwell did, break out with like these huge nonfiction bestseller books. It's a little. There's so many books out there, and there's so many blogs, and there's you don't really know what to do. There's there's just too much. Yeah, you, I, all I voices actually, I, are being drowned out. I actually disagree. I think there's not enough. I think we're actually in a transitionary phase. So think about. I mean, dude, uh, think about it with TV. Like, yeah, I'm thinking about it with TV. So you, so 30 years ago, uh, 30 shows would have 20 million viewers uh, uh, a week. Uh, in 2000, only two shows had 20 million viewers a week. Friends and ER. Now, zero none, shows. None. So so none. will books, now that there'll so be more on, books than on, ever. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Do you think TV is better now than it's ever been? And I'm counting Netflix and Amazon Prime. Yes, I do think TV is better than it's, it's ever been. It's the best it's ever been, right. and it's only getting better. And I think books are going to follow the exact same path. But why is TV better? Because it's more niche now. Because yeah. now, now my wife and I only watch things on Netflix, like it, together that we both love. And then she has, like, she watches nurses' shows because she's whatever a nurse. And then there's a few things I like she doesn't like, right? And so I don't have to watch any garbage, like Friends or whatever. I, I just watch things that I really am into. That's a better world, if you ask me. And I think yeah. books are about to reach that. But what has to happen, there, somebody, has to create the platform where it's really easy to create books, which is what we're trying to do, to make this a frictionless thing. The, the problem is you're thinking about books. The, here's what's going to die. The notion that a book is this special thing that only select people are, are allowed to write. I mean, you've written the, the, the stuff against this for a long time. The idea that you got to get permission, the idea that like it's this event or whatever, I think that is dying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But what will replace it is that I think almost every serious professional in all fields are going to have 
I don't want to say they're all going to have a book. What they're all going to have is a media presence that will show people who they are. If you think about it, how did you, how did people judge you before in the world? They judge you based on your credential, right? right? Well, if you went to Harvard, I guess that means you're smart. They were essentially outsourcing their assessment of you to the Harvard admission committee. Hmm. That, that I think is all going to change. I think That's everyone's really going to have their own media. So now they're going to be able to actually assess what you know and who you are and how you can help them in a sense. So it's interesting. They're going to have to put more work in, right? Because they're going to have to understand who you are. They're going to have to actually develop Harvard real is. skills. Right. They're going to have to display those skills. But all that does, that means there's a massive opportunity in business for companies that can help them display their skills and turn their skills into media. And it doesn't have to be something complicated, man. Like, because that's the idea is that, that, oh, this book is, the idea of a book for a lot of people is still the antiquated notion of opening a vein on a page that's 300, or opening a vein in 300 pages of beautiful prose. No, it can be 70 pages. Like, you're the best person in West Texas who understands exactly how to set pipes the right way in shale oil fields and blah, blah, blah. And so, like, you are the consultant for that. And you're the guy. And there's proof because you've you've done these five projects. You have this white paper or book type thing. And then here's this other thing that shows what you know. So every oil company that comes to shale fields in, in the Permian Basin, you're the guy they hire, right? Things like that. Or 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 you know, you want to be the you want to be a life coach, but you're you're a life coach for CrossFit women who get pregnant but want to keep competing in CrossFit. So then you gotta have your media to prove to them you are credible and you can give them what they, teach them what they want, but every single one of those women come to you now. So right? it's sort of like you always have to, now, I think I think a prior way of thinking about media is I want to create something, I want to create Harry Potter, I want to create something that everybody reads. Yes, but that's now, gone, that's gone. It, it's gone, and now you have to think about... Your micro-tribe. Yeah, who's going to really... Um, you, you have an idea and a vi- or a vision that's uh, be- kind of unique and maybe better than the vision before yours, and you're going to really service the needs of people who need that vision. You need to think of, I, I like the term, I, th- I feel it was Seth Godin maybe who invented the term microtribe. I feel like that's the, the, the best concept that can help you understand, I think, what's coming. But the problem is, it's like Kevin Kelly wrote the Thousand True Fans article, which is a similar sort of idea. Kevin's talking about entertainers. Seth's talking about consultants. But at the end of the day, I think they're all going to end up not being the same thing, but looking very similar. Entertainer, what you're buying from them is um, you're buying escapism or enjoyment or laughter. From a consultant, you're buying knowledge or skills. But you're still, they're still, they're both knowledge workers. Like the idea that that, that a comedian is fundamentally different than, um, you know, like a like a part time CFO. It's not obvious to me that this is the same thing. Like it might be harder to be a comedian than a CFO. But I don't know. What if you're just funny to five thousand people and that's it? You can make easily one hundred fifty grand a year doing that uh, without any problem. It's about what a low level CFO makes, right? You know, like I mean, you're looking at the sort of the same thing. And so uh, uh, here's here, here's what's. In fact, hold on a minute. You're the dude five years ago or ten years ago, whenever we first met, seven years ago, who like your big spiel to me was, and this was kind of what became Choose Yourself. No one's going to work for companies anymore. Everyone's going to work for themselves. And in that world, Jane, and you know this is true. You're talking about this all the time, right? In a world where everyone's going to work for themselves, how is anyone going to get hired? How are you going to prove you should be hired 
at, at, a, at a contractor type job, right? You've got to have some credentials aren't going to work anymore. You've got to have proof. Show me you know how to do this. Show right. me you've done it and you know how. And so in that world where everyone's a contractor, then we have to almost develop a new sense of what media is. Media is not one to many. Media is micro to micro to convey important information. And everyone's got to have it. And they've got to be able to distribute it cheaply, which already exists, but then produce it cheaply. That doesn't exist right now. And I think the skill of... I mean, always what's needed is the skill of coming up with something unique, having a vision that's a little bit ahead, but not too far ahead of what currently exists. Right. And that's a skill that's never going to go away, but it's necessary now as opposed to the Harvard degree. So so the question is with, again, like, so I, I'll ask you. So like you said, we met seven years ago. I've been writing, I write every day for seven years and I bleed out my the blood of my body and I... I, I I asked this to, to many people. I can't keep writing. You probably went through this yourself. I can't keep writing the same <laughs> stories for seven years. Yeah, I went broke and made... My, you have yeah. other stories to tell you haven't told yet. I have other stories to tell I haven't told yet. Which, you, know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but, and they're, but, they're amazing. But, but I still wonder for myself, what's my... Like your next thing was, okay, I'm going to start this company. I've started a company. I started a podcast. You know, you've had a couple of different iterations of starting companies and podcasts and ideas and so on. But it's a constant thing. Like reinvention is a, is a habit almost. You have uh, to develop. Uh, yeah, I, some people. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. Uh, yes, but like you're anxious about it. I'm not so worried about it. Like I feel like, and you you shouldn't be. It's just kind of how you are. You're just anxious about these things. Are you calling me a neurotic Jew? Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm calling you. Um, but like, dude, you have more opportunity than you have time for. You know, like you could easily be doing a lot more things than you are. So, like, I wouldn't worry. I, the idea that everyone's going to have to reinvent themselves all the time, I don't think is true. I think most people, as long as they are the very best at something relevant to a, a, a decent size, a micro-tribe, as long as you stay in that position, I am the best at this. And that does require you to develop, keep developing skills. It doesn't require reinvention, you know? I agree, but, I, and this is, this is the question I wonder. So, as you've seen, as we talked about, when you're good at something and you're doing well with it and getting attention and making money, other people kind of crowd into the space. Now, they, they're not going to be as good as you, but you might, instead of being 500% better, eventually you might just be 50% better or 20% better. Now, the average kind of consumer of media or business or entertainment doesn't recognize the difference between 20% better and 20% worse. Yeah. So, so you kind of have to figure out again how to be 500% better. Well, because you're talking about media as entertainment. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, for that, I think you're right. I think you've got to be a lot better um, to rise above the noise. I'm talking about being different, which is not the same thing as being mm -hmm. better, mm -hmm. right? Everyone's trying to write the, the uh, like the, um, everyone's trying to be the next James Altucher, right? Mm -hmm. But if you were, if your niche was scoped down that was only five or 10,000 people, no one would really care. You know, like it'd be too small. They would, they all would all want to be big. And so what I'm trying to explain to you is that most of your audience are not people who are going to create media. Media is going to be the way they get business, not the business. Does that make sense? Right. For you, media is the business. That's the difference. Um, so for you, yeah. I mean, I could see how that, that's, it's a little bit of a, of a stressful thing. But, you know, also, it's not obvious to me that you, you have, like, 
you were the first one into your niche. And like everyone who comes after you now is like, oh, he's just a low rent James Altucher. You know? <laughs> like, so it's like, I, I like, it's sort of like with me or with like, you know, how many people have tried to imitate Tim Ferriss or Malcolm Gladwell or whatever? The, it, again, even in media, it's like being not better, unique. You got to have a distinct voice. You got to say a certain set of things that no one else has said or in a way no one else has said them. That is what I think is relevant. And you, you want to hear, I'll, I'll give you this super trick to being original. It's really simple. Tell the truth. Like, you know, in this world, no one ever tells the truth. And so if you're willing to tell the truth, that not like, oh, here's my hot take. No, no, no. I mean the fucking truth, like the hard truth that everyone thinks and no one says. If you're willing to do that, people will think you're incredibly original. If you try to be original, it doesn't really work. It's it's really interesting because I read um, I read an article this morning. A friend of mine sent me this article. Uh, she said, check it out. What do you think? And I didn't respond to her because it was an article, How to Survive a Breakup. And she published it on a big platform and so on. And I read it and it was all like, it was okay advice or whatever. But she didn't tell her story of break a breakup that she's mm -hmm. in yeah. that would have solidified her advice for me like it would have been a story and i could have gone on that ride with her yeah. to to see that this to test in my mind if this advice is working or not and i think you're right people are somehow afraid to just go a tiny bit deeper you know to tell which is again what you did with your writing it wasn't just like some pickup book or whatever you're like you went like too deep, you yeah, know, uh, so that became entertaining. Uh, uh -huh. So, and now I see this with Book in a Box. It's sort of like you're getting your um, writers, not, not the writers, the, the clients to uh, kind of go deep enough that it's relevant and interesting. We're, we're, uh, what we really, I mean, JT really, is you're the CEO of your company, talks all about his pimp dad. And, yeah, uh, know. you know, it's a great book. He had like, I loved it. It was a page turner. He had an incredible life story. So uh, we don't do a lot of memoirs. Um, we won't take the memoir people for the most part because uh, most of their life story, like they're just nonsense. Like, but the people who have dumb life stories don't generally ha can't afford us. So mm -hmm. that's fine. No, most of our clients. That's come an interesting to us. thing. Like, so if someone has kind of like a, a mediocre life story, they're not going to get wealthy. Is what you just said. <laughs> well, because they don't have the self awareness. Like people mm -hmm. who are successful tend to be pretty self aware. Mm -hmm. uh, not always. There's a, there's a lot that aren't. But there's a pretty high correlation, at least relative to the general population. So what we see, our, I mean, our stuff is all nonfiction so far. And um, uh, our clients are people who are very successful for whom a book is going to like kind of, it's going to be an all-purpose marketing tool for them. And so what we do, they, and they all come in and they're all like, oh, you know, I, unconsciously, very few of them say this, but I think unconsciously they all want to be you or they want to be Tim Ferriss, they want to be Malcolm Gladwell, right? Um, and so like we have to like get them scoped down and they realize, okay, you can be James Altucher to wealth advisors in the Pacific Northwest. You know, but just so again, them. It's finding that niche. Exactly. We help them find their micro tribe. And then the, the the ones who resist that kind of write books that don't appeal to anyone because they try to appeal to everyone. They don't appeal to anyone. The ones who go with us and really listen to our advice niche down. And then all of a sudden, even if they only sell a thousand books, they go to the exact right thousand people. And now they're flooded with business and they are the experts in the space. And they're set up for five or 10 years. You know, like it happens over and over and over. The first client, the one you talk about, Melissa, pop-up retail. Her book is about pop-up retail. How many people do you think could possibly care about pop-up retail? There's like 5,000 people in America. She's done millions of dollars of business off of that book mm -hmm. because those 5,000 people are decision makers, big businesses, 
have they need these consultants to help them understand how to set up their pop-up retail stuff. So they all hire her now. Like she's consultants on these massive build out like projects for huge retailers and and uh, 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 property management companies and all these sort of things because they, like they, everyone needed it. They didn't even know what they needed, and and she all she had to do she she hasn't been profiled in the New York Times. She's there's nothing about her in the New Yorker. She's in like the the retail newsletter type well, things. Okay, so this, so this is an interesting question. So all of these. Um, media publications that have existed for a hundred years, like The New Yorker or USA Today or whatever, do you think that do you think we're seeing the downfall of them as we go into kind of this micro tribe world? I don't know. It's a good question. I'm not I, 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 we're all, as humans, we're always going to want to have um sort of the thing that everyone knows about that we can talk about, which is why sports, I think, is so popular because it really is one of those things that cuts across. Almost all sort of boundaries and 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 everyone has in common. Um, I I don't know. I, the media is is there's a lot of stuff going on with media. There's a lot of ideological conformity in media, uh, which is going to create sort of a certain shift. There's uh, and then already I feel there's like a backlash after this last election. There's like a backlash against this sort of conformity. The in election media. was the backlash. Right. Like the election of Trump was the backlash against the intellectual homo- homogeny in media. Um, I don't know, man. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I think media is going to be more because so much of it is the same, and they have the same worldview, and so much of it is bankrupt and corrupt, and and just not that like not legitimate. I think no one. They had a long period where they were kind of the standard bearers of truth, and I think that period's over. And so I think there is a massive opportunity for people to, um, like, like. I think media is going to niche too. Uh, in a different way, but like, like uh, I think like someone like the Young Turks, right? Like, I, I don't really like them, but they're a great example well, of somebody. Who are the Young Turks? They're this huge YouTube show. They're sort of like uh, imagine if MSNBC was done by millennials on a budget. I guess something mm-hmm. like that. Um, they're like ESPN. All all of the massive media conglomerates, I think, are going to splinter, and the smart ones will essentially be uh, platforms for lots of. People like you to talk to smaller groups, you know, like you have a huge audience compared to most people, but compared to CNN, you like your audience doesn't exist, right? right? Well, what if CNN wasn't CNN? What if CNN was essentially a production uh, and reporting platform for forty different people who had different ideolo- ideological worldviews and voices, like like Glenn Beck or whatever, but totally all different across spectrum, right? All different types of people. What if that's all CNN was? Is like recording studios, production, basic on the ground reporting, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They, they just set up the platform and then they did the ad sales, but the talent had their own sort of thing and they developed their own audiences, et cetera, right? That I think is the way the world is going uh, because the, the world is bifurcating, man. Like the idea that we all think and believe the same thing is gone, like that's gone and we're never going back to, uh, to that period. That was a very weird moment in time. And I think we're going to break back up into sort of tribal units. And I don't mean like some kooky anarchist Mad Max thing. Although it would not shock me to see America disarticulate in a way. Like it would not shock me to see over the next 20 years, like almost like a European model. Like we'll, ha- we'll have a, like a, na- like a hollow national sort of like a government and like a military, whatever. But I think this Trump election was the first crack that we're going to see. Because pe- here's the thing. People don't have to be in big groups anymore. You don't have to get bad service 
and, and, and marginalization from huge groups anymore. You can just have your own tribe uh, of people that you think alike and believe the same things and can serve you and you can serve them. You can have that now. And, 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 and I think that's the way the world's going. It's interesting because this philosophy is kind of coming out of how you were essentially treated by media out of your books. Like they didn't treat you no. seriously. Instead, yep. like like National Book Award winners sell 2,000 copies know, of their books. You sold 2 million copies of, the, of your books and nobody would. Three, 3 million Three copies of your books and nobody would have you on there. None of it, that media <laughs> would take me seriously. Right. But I had 3 million people buying my books. Right. right? So like, that's the thing is, is I, I feel like... Um, we're going into the world in all ways, I think, is, is a world of micro-tribes. And I think it's going to be for the better in a lot of ways. Now, it could be worse in a lot, because like if everyone... The, the extreme of that is balkanization, right? Is what you got like after the fall of the Soviet Union in sort of Eastern Europe. I don't know, man. I, we'll probably go through that phase, but I think we're going to come out and I think it's going to be way, way better. So, so given all this... What are books people should read to kind of get ready for the the new world? Oh man, I don't know. It's a good question. I, on, like not even trying to to pimp your own stuff, but um, the the sort of choose yourself series. Uh, like uh, uh, I have not read your newest one yet, uh, but like those those are those are a great sort of how to guide to understand why what what's coming and what to do. Um, basically, everyone's going to work for themselves. Yeah, uh, I agree future. with that. And you, of course, you wrote yeah. the books on it, right? <laughs> and so, like, if you understand what that means, is that if everyone's going to work for themselves, then you need to to really take charge of your career, even if you're still working for a company now. Take charge of your career, develop skills, and then. And that's to, important. Like, not everyone's going to be the CEO of a business, of as not. you demonstrated. But you can be in your company and still have a unique voice and create your make your services and skills necessary within that company yep yeah the world is going to change in really exponential ways and no one's really prepared like vr and ai and um uh you know like driverless cars and all these sorts of things are going to change the way this won't be a linear change we're going to see massive exponential changes uh to the world and i think people should start thinking about that now you're okay for now if you don't understand that but even two years from now, you're going to be way behind if you're not at least thinking about this in your own career and developing skills about how to prepare for this. Um, yeah, the, the big thing I would really think about, anything that's going to help you develop sets of skill. here's the big thing, emotional intelligence. Uh, uh, one of the big changes, all of the, all, our entire uh, school industrial complex is geared around teaching high status, the high status jobs are information processing jobs. Those are all done. Done. Doctors. Done. Well, anything, and it's funny because I have Lawyers. This, done. Any, anything where you are require human intelligence to make a, a, an important decision, we now have computers and data. Well, for information processing data. decision. All doctors are is a memory device for pattern recognition, right? AI is going to take that job. Right. And so, but, but, AI, robots won't be doing medical care. That's nonsense. Who's going to actually implement the care? Nurses and other people who are really great at emotional intelligence, at dealing with people, right? So you what know, we call soft really, skills now. But, but you know what's really funny? Like I think about myself. I think I'm actually at the least emotionally intelligent point of my life <laughs> in a you weird way. Why? I just feel like... Uh, uh, 
I don't know. I feel like all, all I've I've read a lot about it. I go to therapy. I do, you know, for years and years I write about my vulnerabilities and I think maybe just writing about that I realize I have more vulnerabilities than I've ever had before. <laughs> So no, you always ha- it's not like you're writing about them as making them up, dude. Right, you just no. don't recognize. You yeah, no, that's just it. But now maybe now I'm just recognizing them more than ever. That's not a bad thing. Why is that a bad thing? It's not necessarily a bad thing. I guess it's just more things that make me anxious in life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've I've added to my neuroses when I wake up in the morning. We all wake up with like a certain set of neuroses, and then we kind of like knock them down as we get out of bed. But well, I don't. You know the saying: when you're going through hell, keep going. Yeah, right. You come out the other end, dude. I mean, like, like yeah, dude. I mean, that it, it always, for me, it, first of all, everything in life goes in cycles. And for me, it always feels like um, the hardest part is always right before the best part. It's almost always the way it works, man. Like, it, I can't tell you how hard it was for me to, to navigate the emotional sort of waters of, of recognizing that I had hired the wrong person to run my company, that it was my fault. It really was. And swallowing that and then swallowing that because of that I needed to step I need to put the right and I had the right person in my orbit and I had to get him in my company and I had to step aside for him because I wasn't good enough to do that job and like CEO like CEO of a startup high status job like you know to, to be the founder and to step down was like now everyone's like oh that's so great whatever good for you for recognizing it was not it did not feel like that in the moment man that felt like what you're talking about where it just felt like a hundred times worse Mm. where i'm like oh my god i went through all this work and then how did i get back in this spot you know and i'm sure something like this will happen again in my life no but that's the thing i mean that's the thing is that the same thing happened right the same thing that happened that screwed up my movie happened in my company this time I recognized it early enough to see what I was doing and make the right decision. I think also the 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 stakes were higher. You had employees, you had partners. I mean, you had you kind of had that then with the movie, but the movie's a one-off. Whereas this was something you wanted. It was a a, a vision you had that you felt that you think is going to last forever and grow. No, and the, build. For me personally, I'm telling you, the stakes were much higher on the movie. Huh. The, the, I had my identity tied to that movie. That movie. Uh, it's funny, man. I say this to to people sometimes. If that movie had succeeded, it actually would have ended up being the worst thing that ever happened to me. I never would have changed again in my life. <laughs> I would have been frozen in time at that moment. Like you never would have been able to tell me anything else the rest of my life because like I would have thought it would have been locked in my unconscious at a deep level that I couldn't be wrong. <laughs> and I haven't you met those people who had like a huge success early and they never changed. They never really evolved after that. Oh yeah, or or if they had huge success, let's say twenty years ago, and forgot what it was like to not have success. So it's been twenty years of well, they haven't just, done anything different, right? You know, like they just keep not even writing that. It's just like you you. The problem happens is that I, like, I mean, I've seen a lot of people from like the nineties who were kind of let's say same category as me like internet entrepreneur and then they kind of made their 100 million and kept going and now they've had 20 years of 100 million right. now they're com- never wrong and they're impenetrable as far as having a conversation with them there you go exactly that's what I, like I could have been one of those people hmm. and um, I was so close and like I'm never going to be like oh I'm super happy my movie failed it was so painful it was the worst that was the most Physically, not just emotionally. It was one of the most... I'll never forget, man, like the the night that... I think it was my birthday, I swear to God. The night that I knew the movie was a failure, like I sat in my bed and I like I cried. Like it was 
physical. I thought I was going to die physically. Like it was like a James Altucher post, you know, like it was like, <laughs> you guys, what I'm saying, you got to write, you got to write this book, <laughs> no, man. I don't want, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready. Like I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not you, ready. I'm going to quote you on you giving me advice. You will die as an artist <laughs> if you don't eventually write this book. You're you're right. So, well, all right. Well, you know what I said this to you about yes. about something. I won't I won't bring up the podcast because this is gonna be your thing. You're gonna have to bring up on your own. Uh, 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 I'll make you a promise that I'll write that book if you promise me you'll write the one that I was talking about. All right, deal. Good. So so Tucker Max, thanks once again for this is like your fifth appearance on the podcast. Fourth, like yeah. your fourth uh-huh. or fifth. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network at jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode and we have some great episodes coming up, subscribe to the James Altucher Show. Just go to iTunes, search for the James Altucher Show and click subscribe. Thank you so much. I really hope you do this.